This morning we're going to be looking at um, actually just verses 1 to 5 in Galatians chapter 1. I had intended all 10 verses, so we'll read all 10 verses, but like I said, we'll cut it off at verse 5. Verse 1 in Galatians says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turned away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We live in a day when the message of the gospel is being distorted. Everywhere you look, there's a distortion of what the true gospel is. In fact, the term Christian today can be defined most um, most anything today. Uh, some people, in fact, think that if you are an American, um, you must be a Christian because, after all, is an American a Christian nation? Uh, well, I would, I would argue that point uh, today because we are not a Christian nation any longer. Well, some people think they're, you know, they're, if a person smiles at you and talks nicely to you, well, they got to be a Christian. I mean, and, and we would think that in our day-to-day as, as mean as people can be out there in our society. We think there's got to be something here about this person. It, it, it may refer to some who try to live a good life, even though the Bible tells us that no one lives a good enough life to be saved. It may refer to someone who goes to church. But none of these Christians have anything distinct about their beliefs. Now, this is not a, this really is not a new phenomenon. This, this kind of situation is what led to the writing of the book of Galatians. You see, the people in the region of Galatia, they were drifting from the faith, and Paul was not going to let that happen without a fight. And so in this letter, in the book of Galatians, you will sense an anger of the Apostle Paul. At the beginning of the letter, Paul skips all of the niceties that, that um, are usually at the beginning of his letters to churches and individuals. In, in this letter, he went right after the problem, and he doesn't let up until he makes his point. 
And so in the letter of Galatians, Paul shows us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just something we share with non-believers. It's, it's not just about how to be saved. The gospel is a message about how to live life with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about finding joy. It's about finding freedom and transformation. Now, many times as I, was, as I was studying and preparing and looking through the book of Galatians, going all the way through it, my mind kept going back to that incredible account that we, we studied a number of years ago in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas, missionaries, were in the Philippian jail. And they were in chains and they were being persecuted for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were in chains in prison, they were singing praises, praise songs to Jesus. They were giving glory and praise to God. And I think to myself, how much I long for that kind of faith to be able to face trials, any trials in my life with that kind of supernatural joy and to be able to understand the root of their joy? You see, it was in the, it, it was in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul and Silas knew that even if they were executed for preaching the gospel, they were going to go to heaven. And that would be a perfectly happy thing to do. They had no problem with that. This would be great to go to heaven. And so I'm going to keep preaching. And so they had every reason to sing. They had every reason to rejoice and delight in the gospel. But you know, there were other people in that prison that night. There were other people who were listening to them. There were other prisoners who were listening. But then especially there was a jailer, the Philippian jailer. And suddenly, while Paul and Silas were singing that night, God sent an incredible earthquake and the ground shook and the doors were open and their chains fell off and the jailer calls for a light. He was just about to kill himself because he thought that all of his prisoners had run away. And Paul calls out a message of life. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Well, the jailer calls for the light and he rushes in and he brought, he brought Paul and Silas out and he fell trembling before them and he asked this one question, this one question, what must I do to be saved? Does that question stand over you today? Do you understand the significance of that question? What must I do to be saved. Can you understand the, the, the basic underpinnings of that question? There must be something that I can do to be saved. There must be something, some kind of action that I can take. There must be some, some array of good works that I can do to stop feeling so guilty before God and to stop being so terrified of death and of the judgment of God? Is there something that I can do about this condition that I find myself in? And Paul and Silas spoke the gospel message of liberation and of freedom. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved.
you will be rescued. Now, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's nothing that you can do to rescue yourself. Just believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And how powerful is that? How liberating that message. I don't have to do anything. And that is what I have the privilege to preach. The liberating message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot study the book of Galatians without looking at the life of Martin Luther. And so I want us to jump almost 15 centuries to the story of Martin Luther, one of my favorite characters in church history. He really was an incredible man, but he was similar to the Philippian jailer in that he was terrified to die. He was a lawyer. And he was a law student en route to go back to school when he was caught in the middle of a thunderstorm. And there was thundering and lightning out in this field that he was in. And the lightning was flashing all around him. And he fell down into the mud. He was terrified to die. He was afraid that these lightning bolts were sent by God Almighty to kill him and to usher him straight into hell. And the only thing he had to answer those terrors were the errors of medieval Catholicism. And so there that night he cries out in the midst of that mud and rain and lightning and thunder and said, help me, St. Anne, I shall become a monk. He cried out to a saint to save him. And he made her a promise that he would become a monk if she would just intercede with God to save his life. And he was good to his promise. He entered a monastery, and there he tried to earn his salvation by extended fasting, by labor, by meditation, by long prayers, and by endless confessions to his father confessor. He was just trying to find some way to be delivered from a guilty conscience and from his terror of death, his terror of the wrath of God, that when he died, he would be sent to hell and there he would suffer forever and ever in extreme torment. And so he was terrified by these things. And the only thing he could do was try to earn his forgiveness by good works. And he became the most extremely zealous monk that there, were, that there ever was in Germany. Scrubbing floors like floors had never been scrubbed before or probably since that time. He refused the meager blanket that was assigned to him in his monk's cell and he laid on the cold floor in the midst of a German winter, shivering, thinking that somehow his physical torments would be a path of escape from the judgment of God. But you see, no matter how hard he worked, no matter how hard he tried, he could not stop the accusation of a guilty conscience and the terror of God behind all of that. And then, just when things were the blackest, Luther was entrusted with the responsibility of teaching the Bible at the University of Wittenberg, and it saved his life. 
It saved his very soul. For in the Bible, he discovered the gospel. He realized that the medieval Catholic system, that barter, that exchange of doing good works to pay for bad works, the whole thing was corrupt. It was not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. And he found in the book of Romans the way out that the gospel pointed to the work of Christ crucified and resurrected and a righteousness that is ours only through faith in Jesus Christ. So now the book of Romans was a centerpiece of that discovery. But the book of Galatians that we're going to study became a treasured and precious source of truth and strength to Martin Luther. In this brief epistle, the Apostle Paul is fighting against some people that, that, that we'll call Judaizers. In other words, they were false teachers. They were trying to mingle the work of Jesus Christ on the cross with law. In other words, they were trying to take what Jesus did and this. See, anytime you take Jesus and, if you can put that and in there, you're not looking at the gospel. It's a perversion. There's no way to get to heaven through a perversion. And so they were trying to add works uh, to Christ. It was Christ plus law equals salvation. That's what they were doing. And in refuting them, the Apostle Paul has given us a timeless message. Refuting works righteousness in favor of a gospel of grace, a gospel of forgiveness, simply by faith and by the grace of God and by the work of Jesus Christ. So Luther delighted in this brief clear, simple, powerful message of the book of Galatians. He loved it. In fact, he said, the epistle to Galatians is my epistle. It's mine. He said, to it I am, as it were, in wedlock. I'm married to this book. It is my Katie. And Katie was his wife's name. He loved this message. He loved the simplicity of the message in the book of Galatians. He loved the liberation from legalism, from trying to do things to make himself good enough for God to accept him, from thinking that somehow our law keeping can pay for our sins. He loved that liberation. And Luther said this, he said, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness than works righteousness. And if you don't build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. And there is no middle ground between the two of them. So what must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus, period. So we come to the liberating message of the book of Galatians. And so this morning, we are starting this new series, and we've entitled the whole series, Galatians, the Danger of False Teaching. And looking over this entire book and reading through it several times and, and, and starting to break down into some paragraphs here, I would assume that we will probably spend the rest of this year on Sunday mornings looking at this tremendous book of Galatians. So it's a liberating message. 
Um, we, are, we are going to find in, in this what some scholars has called the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Others call it the battle cry of the Reformation. And then others say that the, it's the Christian's declaration of independence. So we come in the book of Galatians now face to face with the gospel. And that's what we have here is the gospel. Now, many people wrongly assume or think that the gospel is just for unbelievers or maybe even beginning Christians. They think that. But as as Tim Keller put it so beautifully, the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian life. And he goes on to say, and, and, and it is also the A through Z of the Christian life. So yes, it's the ABCs, but then it's all the rest of it as well. So again and again, we are going to come back to the gospel message and see how powerful it is for we who are already Christians. One of the central observations in Keller's book that he makes is one of the most obvious things as you study the book of Galatians. Galatians was written to Christians. It was written to Christians. It wasn't written to the unbelievers. It was was written to people who already believed in Jesus Christ, but they were straying from the simplicity and the clarity of the gospel message, and they needed to come back again and again and understand the gospel. So the gospel's for us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All over the world, sin has, has enslaved people in its power. They are in, the ch- in change, just like Paul and Silas were in physical change. They are in spiritual change. They are in bondage to sin. They are in bondage to Satan's power. They are in chains and they can't, that they cannot see and chains that they cannot break. And the only liberation from this enslavement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is from faith to faith, just as it is written The righteous will live by faith. Now picture, if you will, in your mind, Paul and Silas in those physical chains there in that Philippian jail. And then picture sinners apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. At this point, not having believed in the gospel, they are in the same kind of chains. They are enslaved. They are in prison. Charles Charles Wesley pictures this way in the hymn, And Can It Be? And I I, I just love that verse that talks about salvation in those kind of terms, that enslavement, the chains. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Night, thine eye, that's the eye of Jesus. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's liberation. Amen? That is liberation. And only the gospel can set you free. Now, this this is not an escape story. We need to understand this. We're not talking about 
escaping something. It's not that all. Many, many of you, I'm sure, you've, you've watched movies about great escapes. I mean, uh, a few came to my mind, The Great Escape, that's quite old. It starred uh, Steve McQueen and James Gardner and Charles Bronson, um, uh, and, and, and it was about 76 POWs who escaped from a German POW camp through a 102-meter tunnel. It was a great movie, great story. And then there was Escape from Alcatraz, starring Clint Eastwood. And somehow he cleverly finds a way to get himself off of that island and make a great escape. And then, I mean, who hasn't heard about the famous Harry Houdini and how he used to do the Chinese water, tor- water torture thing upside down in a, in a cell of water? But you know, when you look at all of those escape stories, in every case, the escape artist is celebrated. Wow, they are amazing. They are good. Look at what they did. Galatians emphasizes the liberation by Christ. It is the epistle of freedom. The gospel is not about escape. The gospel is about rescue. And that's right here in Galatians chapter 1, in the, in, in the verses that you heard me read a little bit earlier, but particularly in verse 4 when it says, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to set us free. If we are going to get into, and, and we'll get into that verse a little bit later, um, but I just want you to see that it's a rescue mission. The whole thing with rescue that I want to point out here is, is the one rescued cannot deliver themselves. And to God alone be the glory for the deliverance. To God alone be the glory, to Jesus alone. We cannot save ourselves. Self-salvation through law-keeping is no gospel at all. It does not work. And even if it did, we would spend eternity insufferably praising ourselves and glorifying ourselves for our own great escape from hell. Instead, we are going to be glorifying God for his great rescue of us, his deliverance of us. It's a rescue. And so we are going to celebrate the gospel of rescue, this gospel of liberation for many weeks together in the book of Galatians. And so we need to to think a little bit about the content of the the book. And the context is the, the churches of Galatia. And the second part is the infiltration of false teachers. Now, let me just kind of set an historical context here. The Apostle Paul wrote this book. He was an apostle, and we're going to talk about his apostleship. He was a church-planting missionary who went through various regions, including what is now considered modern-day Turkey, and he went through that area, and he planted churches throughout the area. Now, the name of Galatians is linked to the word Gaul, linked to the history of France. So there were some Gauls that came apparently from that area, and they settled in Asia Minor. 
After terrorizing the Greeks and, and the Romans, they settled there, and the Roman Empire made Galatia the place of the Gauls, a subset of Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. Well, Paul visited this region with Barnabas on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and and chapter 14. It tells the story of how he planted churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. It tells the whole story about all of that and how he was stoned and left for dead by hostile Jewish leaders who followed him from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra, and they stoned him there, and they left him for dead, but he wasn't dead. God raised him up out of the pile of stones, and he continued to preach. And at the end of that first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas revisited these small churches that they had planted. And, and they, they showed that, that shepherding heart and that concern for the works that they had done. And it was out of that concern that he writes this epistle because sometime after Paul and Barnabas left, some other teachers came along, some false teachers. And they were Jews who claimed to believe in Jesus, and they believed that a combination of trusting in Jesus and obedience to the law of Moses equaled salvation. They are who we call the Judaizers. They were preaching a false gospel. And in so doing, they also undermined the Galatians' confidence in the Apostle Paul as a faithful teacher of the Word of God. And so they said negative things about the Apostle Paul. And we'll get into what those negative things were, but it seems to me that they were saying that he got his message and his mission from the Apostles in Jerusalem. But he messed up along the way. And, and so they were saying that he didn't get the whole thing correct. And so he himself had, had to be corrected. And they were adding to the message the rest of the ingredients of the recipe of how a sinner is supposed to be saved. And so here they are, they're questioning Paul, they're undermining him, they're saying he is, to some degree, a second-hander. That he's not a a first-generation leader, and his authority was less than, than that of the apostles in Jerusalem, and that he wasn't teaching accurately the gospel. And so these Judaizers came, and they were telling these Gentiles, these, these recent converts to Jesus Christ, these things, and they had no means which with to fight back. They didn't understand the law of Moses. They weren't Jews themselves. They were Gentiles. And, and, and so they, they, they didn't have that knowledge that the Jewish people had, and so they couldn't resist them. They had no way of fighting back. So pretty soon after Paul and Barnabas left, they started believing this false gospel and going off in the wrong direction. And so Paul writes this epistle. So look at Paul's apostolic greeting, his, his writing to correct these false understanding of the gospel. He begins there in verse 1, and to Paul, an apostle, 
Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So it's not written to one church like Corinth or one individual like Timothy and 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy or to Titus in, in the book of Titus. It was written to a, a region of churches. So he meant for this letter to be read by all the churches, and he calls himself an apostle here, and he asserts his authority. The apostle Paul, apostles, apostle literally in the Greek meant sent one, an emissary, an ambassador, someone who was sent out with a mission. And so sometimes when you're reading in the New Testament, the word is used of people like Barnabas and and others that were basically the equivalent of what we know as missionaries today. And so you do see that use there. But that would be an apostle with a lowercase a. That's not a title. It's an apostle, just a sent one who was sent out. Then there is this kind of use. Paul an apostle with a capital A. He is one of those original pillars on which the church was built or the foundation on which the church was built as it testified to Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness, authoritative teacher of doctrine. That's what apostle with a capital A means. And so he wants them to know that his role as an apostle, as a teacher of the gospel, was given to him by God himself. You see, they were saying he got it from the apostles of Jerusalem. No, he didn't. He said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, that God himself, not by man. Now, there's nothing wrong with with pastors receiving a commission from, from other people to serve, as a matter of fact. That's, that's all we have these days. Churches like you, uh, the, our church here, um, gave me the right to be able to teach and preach here in this location by a congregational vote. However, that does not diminish the fact that I have been called by God to preach the word. So whether I have a church to preach in or don't have the church to preach in, I am still called by God. That is my commission. But Paul didn't get his authority and his right to teach or his ministry from any congregational vote or from anybody at all. He got it directly from from God through Jesus Christ. And so he has the authority to teach the gospel, and that's what he is claiming here. He was was called into his ministry directly by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so Paul had been a bitter enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He makes his appearance in the Bible as a young man who is consenting to the martyrdom or the killing of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. He then, in chapter 8, begins a career of bitterly persecuting the church and dragging off men and women and throwing them into prison. And there are implications that he perhaps may have even killed some of them himself. He was a violent man. And he at least consented to their death if he didn't actually do it himself. That's the kind of man that, that Paul was before his conversion. 
And meanwhile, he was also an, an excellent law-abiding Jew who was climbing the ladder of careerism and Judaism. He was getting greater and greater as a Jew in being recognized by, by um, the authority figures of the day, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. All of these audiences seeing his greatness and Judaism and his law keeping. And then he became an emissary from them to persecute the church. Even getting letters from the authorities in Jerusalem to go to synagogues in Damascus and to persecute the Christians there. And it was while he was on his way to Damascus that suddenly a blinding light from heaven flashed. And we're going to talk more uh, about this uh, next week. Well, probably a couple weeks now because we're not going to get all the way through this whole message today. But he fell on the ground and he heard a voice saying to him in Acts chapter 9 and verses 4 and 5, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. Oh, how those words changed his life. I am Jesus. I am the resurrected one. I am the Savior. I am the God of the universe. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So from the very beginning of his own salvation is linked with his calling to the work of, for Jesus as an apostle. And so he did not get his commission from any human being or from any human source at all. The Lord told Ananias then in the, in the city that he sent uh, Paul to him and he was to baptize him. The Lord said, Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so it's going to be a, a, a messenger to the Jews, but especially to the Gentiles. And so we have his apostolic greetings there in verse 1. What gospel message is it that, that these apostles should preach and that is still with us today? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of everything. And it is God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he says right there in those verses. It was a living Christ it was a living Jesus that appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and changed his whole life. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was the centerpiece of the gospel, and it was Paul's own joy and hope. And so, so we, we look at this, this phrase, grace to you. He says, grace and peace to you is a standard apostolic greeting. But in Galatians, I think it takes on extra significance. Later, he's going to say that they had fallen away from grace, and we'll talk about that different phrase. But basically, there's a, there's a principle of grace by which we are saved, and it's over against law or works or self-righteousness. We are saved by grace, and we can't say that enough. We are saved by grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is a disposition in the heart of God towards us. Start there. It is in the heart of God. It's God's attitude towards us. 
a disposition of love and benevolence and generosity towards us to lavish on us every spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus who deserved eternal condemnation because we have broken his law. So to understand grace, it's in the heart of God. It results in gifts and good things flowing out of God to us. It comes to us through Jesus Christ. We receive it by faith, and it is directly contrary to what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve to spend eternity in hell. But we, through the grace of God, can be adopted into the family of God. Now, the last part is probably one of the more famous aspects in the definition of grace, and that is unmerited favor. Maybe you've heard that before. However, that is, that is so weak, unmerited favor is so weak and paled compared to the full-blooded understanding of grace. Unmerited favor is, is when you go find a stranger and you give them a $20 bill. That's unmerited favor. They didn't deserve that. You didn't know them. They were a stranger. Folks, eternal life is no $20 bill, and we are no total strangers to God. What are we? We are enemies. We are murderers. We are lawbreakers. We deserve condemnation. And God is giving us a river of blessing by grace. Paul says, grace and peace to you, not by works, but by grace we are saved. And in direct opposition throughout this book, they are going to be in direct opposition. You're you're either going to be saved by grace or you're going to be saved by by works, law, self-righteousness. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21, Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you can be saved any other way by doing good works, then Christ died in vain. Later he says in Galatians chapter 5 and, uh, and verse 4, he says, you have become estranged from Christ You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So then he gives us a marvelous quick synopsis of the grace message. If you you know what to look for, these are sweet, sweet words. And they're in this great hymn, Come Thou Fount. The writer says, come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's unchanging love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me. When a stranger wandering from the fold of God, and here's a phrase, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. 
Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's right there in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That phrase, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. So beautiful. That's a, that's a very quick summary of the gospel message. It focuses on Christ. Jesus is the one who gave himself for our sin. It is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus imposed his precious blood. He stepped. In other words, what he did is he stepped in between us and the lightning strike of the wrath of God. He took that lightning strike for us on the cross and he died in our place. He interposed his precious blood. He laid down his life. He gave himself. Why? For our sin? The gospel's incredible. The gospel tells us that it was far worse than you could, could, could have possibly imagined about yourself. And the answer is far more glorious. And the future is far brighter than you possibly could have imagined for yourself. It's really, really bad news, and it's really, really good news. The really bad news is we were sinners. We were violators of the law of God, and God's wrath was against us because of that written code that stood against us and was opposed to us. And Jesus took the guilt himself. He took the condemnation that those sins deserved, and he died in our place. He did it, it says, to rescue us from this present evil age. As I said very plainly, we could not and cannot save ourselves. It's all about rescue. We could not rescue ourselves. And so God sent his son with, with deliverance and he rescued us, it says, from this present evil age. Well, this is something that can only really be seen by faith. You can only see it with the eyes of faith. This evil age that we live in. But many verses talk about this. Paul writes about in Colossians 1.13, he says, He, God the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transformed us or brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That is a rescue mission. Jesus was sent by the Father to take us up out of Satan's dark kingdom and bring us into the beloved kingdom of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about how that was for us before we were even Christians. He said, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others we were enslaved to satan to his kingdom and we could not save ourselves so god sent his son to rescue us from this present evil age we are free now we are free from sin we are free from the law and we are free from the power to condemn us and send us to hell. We are free from hell itself. We are free from condemnation. We are free from guilt. We are now free to serve God as Jesus Christ did. And Paul's going to get into that in Galatians chapter 5. This is not a message of self-salvation, is it? 
It's a rescue in which Jesus has freed us. Therefore, to God be the glory. Look at, look at what it says there. According, as we get to the end of, of uh, verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. In self-salvation, you get the credit. You get the glory. You rescued yourself. But in salvation by grace, God gets the glory, and we are going to praise him forever and ever for saving us. And every day, we should fall on our knees before God and thank him for saving us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for giving me what I do not deserve. And then Paul turns, and it's like day and night, praising God for the glory, and then he goes into a bitter astonishment. In, in verse number six, I marvel that you are turned away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And we'll just have to pick up there next week as we look at the remainder of this message. But before you go home today, I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts to take home with you. Number one, are you like the Judaizers? Then Galatians for you. The Judaizers, they were very religious. They were religious in their worship. They were orthodox in their theology. They were moral in their conduct. And yet something was missing. Although God was in their mind and in their actions, he was not in their heart. Thus their religion was little more than hypocrisy. The Judaizers were hypocrites because they thought what God would do for them uh, depended upon what they did for God. And so they read their Bible, they prayed, their tithe, they kept the Sabbaths as if their salvation depended upon it. What they failed to understand is that God's grace cannot be earned, it only comes free. And I'm afraid there's a lot of people in churches all over across our country that think if I just go to church and I just read my Bible and I just tithe and I just do this and I just do that, then God surely is going to accept me and I can find forgiveness of my sin. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. And if we trust in him, he will make us right with God by giving us the free gift of his grace. And when we reject our own righteousness to receive the righteousness of Christ, we become former Judaizers. And then finally, do you have the true Christ? Do you have the true Christ? You said, well, isn't there only one Christ? Well, all the cults have their Christ, but he's not our Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses have a Christ, but he's not God the Son, nor did he raise from the dead, because according to them, his body was dissolved into gas in the tomb. Their Christ came back in 1914. He is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Mormons, they have a Christ. Their Christ was a polygamist secretly married to Martha and Mary at the wedding of Canaan of Galilee. He's not our Lord Jesus Christ. The seven-day Advents have a Christ, but he did not bear our sins in his own body on the tree. According to them, Satan was the scapegoat and our sins were put on him. Our Christ is, their Christ is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholics, they have a Christ. The priest literally makes him by pronouncing five Latin words over the water and the bread in their mass. 
That's not our Lord Jesus Christ. The liberals have their Christ, but he was not virgin born. His miracles were sleight of hand. His life was only a good example. His death was an unfortunate martyrdom, and his resurrection was only a myth. Their Christ is not our Lord Jesus Christ. The Judaizers who invaded the church of Galatia had their Christ too, but he was a Christ who was unable to save to the uttermost all of those who come to God through him. His grace and power were not sufficient. He, he required, and in addition to his own work, that the law of Moses be hung like a dead weight around the necks of all of those who aspired to have any hope of heaven. He is not our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have our Lord Jesus Christ? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal, uncreated, self-existing Son of the living God. Our Lord Jesus Christ created heaven and earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin when he stepped out of eternity into time and he became a man among men. Our Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He raised from the dead. He cleansed the, he raised the dead. He cleansed the leopard. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry multitude. He changed water into wine. He walked on the water. He stilled the storm. Our Lord Jesus Christ died an atoning death as a sacrifice for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ was buried and remained in the tomb for three days and three nights. Our Lord Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead and proved himself alive to many infallible proofs. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascended bodily into heaven and now sets enthroned at the right hand of God the Father exercising his ministry as our great high priest and our advocate to the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ has sent his Holy Spirit into the world to call out a people for his name, a blood-bought um, bride, a church, one with himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to receive his bride and to rule this world and to establish a literal kingdom of God on earth. And our Lord Jesus Christ calls you to, to not merely believe in who he is and what he has done, but to surrender your life to him by turning from sin and depending completely on him to exchange all that you are for all that he is. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that Christ? Do you have the true Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ? If not, the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to put your faith and trust and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ.